I'm Elisa Anwar and in this month's episode we'll be looking at probably the greatest intergenerational problem that faces the young today, climate change. Now, the topic is hitting our headlines due to COP26. Having taken place in November 2021, COP saw over 100 world leaders join together for two weeks in Glasgow to make commitments towards the environment. But what if COP26 acknowledged the young? What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation. As you know, we postponed COP26 by a year. But during that year, climate change did not take time off. And the IPCC report in August was a wake-up call for all of us. It made clear that the lights are flashing red on the climate dashboard. That report, agreed by 195 governments, makes clear that human activity is unequivocally the cause of global warming. And we know that the window to keep 1.5 degrees within reach is closing. World leaders agreed to end deforestation by 2030. The methane pledge agreed to cut emissions of this greenhouse gas also by 2030. Everyone was encouraged to protect communities and natural habitats. Some states created plans to phase down their use of coal power and countries agreed to keep 1.5 degrees alive. Seems promising on paper, but what about in practice? Inside COP, they're just politicians and people in power pretending to take our future seriously, to, pretending to take the present seriously of the people who are being affected already today by the climate crisis. We say no more blah, blah, blah. No more exploitation of people and nature and the planet. No more exploitation. No more blah, blah, blah. Those were the words of Greta Thunberg. Now, Greta's made a name for herself as one of the most widely known youth climate activists, and behind her is a growing brigade of young people concerned about their future. Climate change is probably the greatest intergenerational issue facing our young. 50% of the world's population are under 30, yet young people aren't given a platform at COP to voice their opinions. So what do the young think? I'm joined by three young activists, Paddy, Ishan and Martin to find out. Um, so Martin, we'll start with you as you were at COP26. Why do you think that young people are so passionate about climate change? For us, it's always been an issue. Um, and I think for us, we have a more of a vested interest in that it's, it is very much so more our future just by the, the very fact that we are younger. So any like kind of things that we're doing now will affect, directly affect our future and our children's future. I think there's increasingly a sense that um, with all the, the wildfires last year, um, that the problem is now. It's no longer a problem in 2050. We're starting to really feel this already, and it's only going to get worse. I think uh, for, for the youth, uh, for a lot of us over the last 20 years, perhaps, uh, we've grown up in these times where we've seen abrupt weather patterns and climate crisis envelop our own kind of localities and our countries. Uh, there's an ecological breakdown happening quite vividly, and they're very upset about their present. You know, their present world does not give them that guarantee that they'll have a, a future to look forward to. 
it was quite interesting because at the Youth for Climate event, and this was before COP26, Boris Johnson said, and I've got his quote here, young people around the world are already paying the price for the reckless actions of their elders. Now, all three of you have sort of said that, you know, the burden of climate change does understandably fall upon us and future generations. Now, I think it is important that we don't play this generational blame game, but from your experience, do you think that there is that much worry or as much worry amongst the older generations for the climate as there is amongst young people? Yeah, I think a lot of the older generations have been brought up uh, in and profited from the industrial extractive capitalist world, right? That has given them huge upward mobility and that sense of development of the world. Uh, so for them, it's not as big a worry or, or something that is not as uh, lived a reality. I think there is a perception among um, our age group in particular that just some older generations just don't care. And I'm not sure that's entirely fair. I mean, for example, my grandparents' generation were brought up after the war, times were hard, and they were brought up to keep reusing things. Like you darned your own socks, you did DIY. It was about minimizing waste. And we've moved away from that. But some of that generation still have those kinds of habits. Um, and they weren't for climate reasons, but they still have concerns about avoiding waste um, and things like that. There are also plenty of people and younger people in our generation that they couldn't give a toss about the climate and would be happy to do whatever, all sorts of things that, that we now know are, are harmful. But I also think that a lot of, I mean, personally, a lot of the information I see about climate change is through things like social media, um, where obviously this generation is not so present. So I do think there is maybe not quite as much information that, that they access. It's not quite climate change. It's obviously in the, the big media, um, but not quite so prevalent and not, not you don't get all the kind of volume that you'll see going through Instagram or whatever. I think one thing that kind of struck me at COP was that they didn't really provide any framework or strategy to include young people. Um, so do you feel like the voice of the youth is listened to within discussions at a higher level? On climate change. Yes. So the week before COP, there was another conference, COI 26, which was the kind of youth. It was affiliated with COP 26 officially. Um, so I think that was a great platform to have more young people come and give their views. I'm not 100% sure what was done with their views. Um, but there was there was that. Um, but no, there wasn't a huge amount of young people able to, to be in in the actual conference which is tricky and it is tricky for young people to have an influence on policymakers, which is something that that could massively be improved upon yeah i i think the voices of the young at cop uh, it, it's interesting because i you know i was there for two weeks uh in fact more than two weeks uh, with different movements and i did see there were platforms where people from different cultures and different age groups were invited but I felt a lot of it was tokenistic. Like if you look at um, Alok Sharma's speech at the end of COP26 and listen to some of the people involved, they're definitely, they definitely heard the protests outside. And I think the youth voice was, was heard, but whether that translated into any kind of um, action in the political like decision-making, I'm not convinced that it really did. I, I think we can generalize about the youth as kind of one homogenous group. There's obviously like young people in island nations, which probably won't exist in 30 years. And they 
definitely were not listened to. It's interesting because Greta and this youth quake that we've had in climate action is something that we really can't ignore. And that is youth led. So do you think that that's translating into policy or do you think, again, like Ishan says, that it's very much tokenism? We acknowledge that Greta and this youth movement is there, but it's not really translating into anything. I think it's it's definitely pushing for more action, pushing for more dialogue and, and creating that sense of urgency. And I think that is a great first step. It still needs to translate more constructively and, and in a more kind of um, holistic way in how it shapes this collective policy. So, I mean, there's much to be done on that front because uh, essentially, uh, you know, Boris Johnson or, or a lot of the world leaders probably pick up what Greta might have said or the other youth leaders might have said and, you know, kind of, put that in their own speeches, but they do it, you know, because it's popular. It's not because they really align with uh, what they're demanding. So what would you like to see happen? Personally, I think it's not something that, that there can kind of be a one size fits all answer to, like across the world or even within different countries. I think one thing that's really important is like a huge push towards really good, high quality, interactive education that, that people can relate to, rather than just telling people that, that they need to take action to help people understand why they should take action and um, understand the impact that their action can have. And then it will be much, I feel like there'll be much less friction between people doing things that, that will have an impact, um, whatever that may be, whether it's putting solar panels on your roof or going vegetarian. Um, there's all sorts that people can do. And I think it's just helping people realize that and, and going ahead and doing that themselves, which obviously does take a lot of funding and is very complicated. Um, but I think it is very, very possible. Um, we've had huge public health messages. There's all sorts of words and acronyms that we now all know that you would not have known 18 months ago. So it clearly, clearly is possible. Um, we just need to, to do it. I, I completely agree. There's no like one size fits all. I mean, one of the ironies was that the same week that COP26 was um, starting, Biden was asking Saudi Arabia and Russia to boost oil production. And the thing is that we don't have the investment in the infrastructure needed to wean the economy off coal, off coal, well, coal, but mainly oil um, in the Western world. Um, and I think that needs to change. I think one of the important strategies we can do with that is the introduction of um, carbon taxes, um, which creates some kind of disincentive on higher polluting foods and goods and things like that. What we lack is a political will. And that political will can only emerge by having more diversity in these decision-making circles. It's really about listening and engaging with people from indigenous cultures who hold that ancient knowledge in understanding what is that is required for, you know, reparations for our ecosystem. So I think it's through those kind of conversations and imaginations that we can really talk about cohesive climate action. A lot of the time, targets aren't met, something which we may see with COP26. 2030 is a very convenient length of time for the goals. It's short enough to seem quite soon, but far enough that most of the current leaders that we have will have moved on. So only time will tell whether the promises made at COP will be kept. But is it just governments and international political bodies that have leverage in creating change? I'm now joined by Alice bordini Staden, who believes that the financial sector can help. Alice is an investment committee member and stewardship lead for the National Trust and is an advisory member of the Financial Reporting Council. So Alice, 
I'm interested specifically in how the financial sector can directly influence climate change and decarbonisation. Is it simply that the financial sector can put pressure on big corporations to reduce emissions? Or is it more than that? Yeah, no, it's, it's more than that. It's, uh, it's quite complex in which uh, there are many different levers. So on one side, what we do as investors, we are having very robust conversations with the management and the board of these companies to encourage them to commit to a transition plan. Engagement is not just talking. Engagement has an escalation strategy that if the, co- the corporate is unresponsive, then we are ready to action. And, and perhaps the, the clearest example and most covered example in, in the news this year for, for investor action on climate has, has been the essentially the rebellion at the Exxon Mobil uh, AGM, where uh, led by a small fund voted out three board members to replace them with three board members of, uh, of our uh, nomination that were more aware that times are changing. So that is what we did on the, on the investor side. Then we have banks, banks and insurance companies. They have an absolutely key role in the transition because they are the enablers. So if banks don't provide the financing and insurance companies don't insure the project, the project is not going to happen. Now, of course, there is the role of uh, public money. Public, uh, public sector has a very, very important role because on one side, especially for poorer countries, this $100 billion a year that was promised in Paris and has yet to be delivered, that is, uh, is money provided by uh, developed countries and, uh, and uh, multilateral banks to help poorer countries to adapt and mitigate the effects of climate change. So essentially, as investors, you're having robust conversations with boards to be more climate aware in their decisions. You propose escalation plans. Banks then have an influence because they control the purse strings into what corporations can actually invest in. And then the public sector is there to de-risk these pro-climate initiatives. Is that a good summary, would you say? Um, by creating also, they're all the public sector, the, the right set of policies, they can accelerate the transition. So for example, when we see policy that says no internal combustion engine cars can be sold uh, after 2030 or 2035, that gives clarity to automakers that they only have uh, 13 years to sell internal combustion engine cars, after which, if they want to be in business, all of their sold cars are going to have to be electric. So creating this clarity on the direction of travel is essential for business, so that business knows what's coming and they can prepare. So essentially, investors, banks, and the public sector all need to be advocating this. But if one isn't, or we have some companies who aren't, or some governments who aren't, then surely that poses a massive challenge. Because for this to work, everyone needs to be on board, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is absolutely true that if this is, uh, this is to happen in the, nece- in the required time frame to stay below uh, one and a half degrees, uh, we, need, uh, we need all parts of the economy to, to work. And we see 
We see clearly in Europe, in Europe is where we are most advanced in climate commitments, that on the finance side, we are leading policy. The problem is in other places, um, I'm afraid, but you know, China and India, um, Russia, Brazil, uh, this uh, these large emitters are not aligned on, uh, on one and a half degrees. In fact, uh, are, uh, are deeply uh, misaligned. Uh, and, uh, and it's very true that if, uh, even if Europe halves its emissions uh, by, by 2030 as, uh, as committed, that doesn't help. That doesn't help in, uh, in having a shared goal of one and a half degrees. Degrees, and unless uh, you have these large emitters that are still rolling out new coal, they are still increasing emissions, then it becomes very difficult for uh, for our overall effort to to reach one and a half. Now, I am a big advocate of uh, of carbon pricing and uh, a carbon tax to help our shared effort in, in, uh, in keeping global temperature rises to acceptable levels. As young people, you know, we protest, we say that climate action needs to happen and it's very much like government-led our protests, whereas you've shown that the financial sector is so much more than that. You know, money really does control everything and it is investors and it is banks and it's businesses that have so much power it isn't just governments they all need they all need to align and uh, absolutely keep the pressure up uh, around the financial sectors around companies around the, the producers of, of, the, of the goods that you buy from supermarkets to the uh, takeaway places so for example you know we saw it was it was very encouraging and then if you remember after um blue planet 2 was released and david attenborough so well explained the plague of plastics in the ocean then there's been a very very marked shift in the uk consumers against plastics uh, takeaway shops so it was after this that pret for example banned or plastic cutlery and introduced wood cutlery. And, and this is the power of the consumer. If the consumer says, I'm not going to go to Pratt because they give me plastic cutlery, then, then Pratt takes notice and they start introducing more environmentally friendly uh, products. And that is the power of the consumer. So never underestimate what you young people can achieve by just shifting your buying choices and i i shouldn't leave this very interesting chat with you alisa today without saying fast clothing is is a real plague on the environment so this uh, this notion that you can go and buy five pound uh, t-shirts that you wear once or twice and then you throw them away. The clothing industry has got devastating effect on the climate and on biodiversity. This is also something that you, young people perhaps could, uh, could be aware of and, uh, and, and shift their, uh, their actions on. There's lots of like little things that we can do that actually on a global scale make such a big difference as consumers. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the, the consumers, so they're buying choices and they're voting their voting is so important. And Obama said at a COP uh, last month, don't think that politics 
is not for you. This is not, you're not interested in politics. Well, that is one of the biggest levers that you can have by voting, by voting the right people in power. So, you know, we should all go and, and, and vote at the elections because that is how we can change the direction of travel. Money does really control the world on a large scale corporation level, but also on a small individual level. Alice shows that even as consumers, we can use our money and our vote to create change. So that's one way to help. Are there others? I'm joined by IF researcher John Hobby to tell us a little bit more about why he thinks degrowth might be the solution to climate change. And he also offers a positive look at the future. If we want to talk about degrowth, I would say that quite a lot of people wouldn't really understand what that is. Yeah. Um, so as I said, like it's not really about you know aiming to reduce GDP, but it's kind of moving towards a growth agnosticism is what a lot of people call it. So it's kind of not really worrying about whether GDP as a whole is going up or down, but it's trying to focus on which parts of our economies that have improved human welfare and don't degrade the environment. Um, and trying to sort of scale those up, you know, so, so that would be areas like uh, public education, public health care and the care economy. Um, and then also realising which parts of the economy uh, are harmful for the environment and don't really imp- improve human welfare. So like fossil fuels, um, excessive consumption, and all, the, all, all, all these kind of areas um, that sort of, yeah, sort of increase GDP, but don't really improve welfare and maybe harm the environment. Um, and there are multiple, yes, yeah, so sort of multiple ways to do that. So you say there are multiple ways. Can you think of any examples off the top of your head? So trying to incentivize um, companies to sort of make goods last for a longer amount of time um, rather than sort of designing them to break. I mean, it sounds a bit conspiratorial, but, you know, designing to break after two or three years uh, so that you need to replace them, maybe sort of moving towards products as services so that there's more an incentive for companies to to fix the goods that they've sold you rather than just replace them. Um, And then sort of, yeah, when it comes to cars, you know, people in big cities often don't always need a car. Um, So maybe moving to sort of... um, you know, like uh, renting cars. Um, like, like these are two policies that would so that would lower GDP, but sort of wouldn't have a negative impact on human welfare. Sort of people would still be able to use these goods when they need them, um, but it would uh, sort of make make these sectors much less damaging for the environment. Do you think that this was touched upon in COP at all? This idea of degrowth. Um, I personally don't really think so, uh, especially not as part of the mainstream talks. Uh, I think that a lot of the solutions offered at COP were quite sort of path dependent. So they kind of, you know, accept the way that we sort of produce and consume now and sort of aim to tweak them to to produce, you know, like less emissions uh, without really sort of fundamentally changing the way that we, um, you know, the way that we do things, which for me, is, um, is what's causing uh, global warming and climate change. So I think cars are quite a good example of this. So there was a big push at COP26 towards the adoption of electric vehicles, which is definitely a good thing, you know, because electric vehicles are much better than, you know, sort of polluting petrol cars, but it's not going to solve all of our problems, right? So uh, unless our national grid is 100% renewable, then, you know, sort of that's still, yeah, electric cars still uh, produce uh, emissions. Um, and also I think it's just kind of, it's a missed opportunity for us to, redesign the way that our that our cities work um so i think degrowth is an important part of it because you know it's it's about recognizing the limits to gdp growth um and um and you know sort of how it can't be fully decoupled from resource use um but a lot of research shows that gdp can be completely decoupled from from sort of carbon emissions right so i think um the most important step has got to be 
the transition to renewable energy as quickly as possible. Um, so here, I think that is something that's going to require massive government investment because at the moment it's too risky for the private sector to, to you know, take on this transition. Um, so what we sent, what I think we need is um, a lot of a lot of public investment in green energy um, to sort of crowd in private sector investment. You know, to sort of do the basic research so that um, it's more profitable for for the private sector to come in and sort of you know um, get on that that wave of innovation essentially. Um, I also think that investment and uh, solidarity payments are going to be need to be made to the global south and poorer countries, you know, to help them decarbonize and also to sort of help them mitigate uh, the impacts of global warming uh, and climate change, which are going to, you know, predominantly affect them. Um, and then also, I think sort of carbon markets as well are another policy that are quite important. Um, so one of the big problems is, is that greenhouse gas emissions are sort of what economists call an externality. So it's not priced into the production of a good. Um, so it's, it, that, that's a cost that's borne by society and not by producers. So you need to find a way to price in the effect of carbon emissions. Um, and carbon markets are one way of doing that. Um, and it's good to see that in the EU, it looks like the uh, emissions trading scheme is starting to take off. So that's a positive. Um, so yeah, th those, what I, those for me are the most important um sort of other solutions this whole topic of climate change and the whole topic of this podcast really can seem a little bit doom and gloom um so do you think that there is some hope do you think there's a light at the end of this tunnel or do you think it is worrying um i mean it is worrying uh, but i think there is definitely light at the end of the tunnel um so one example that i i sort of really gives me hope personally is um, sort of, it was a little bit before our time, uh, but in the sort of 80s and 90s, the, the hole in the ozone layer was a big issue. Uh, and that sort of came about because of um, these chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons that were used as refrigerants. Um, and in 1987, um, 196 countries got together in Montreal um, to ban the use of chlorofluorocarbons as refrigerants. The hole in the ozone layer uh, started shrinking and um, international cooperation and policy can have a big impact on environmental issues. I don't know. It just it, it shows that change is possible. And I guess little things like the transition to veganism that quite a lot of people are doing, little things like not having plastic straws, like especially young activists and young people and social media is very much moving in the direction of we need to do X to solve the climate crisis. I think I think that wasn't there 20 years ago mm -hmm. as much. Yeah. And like as one individual, it seems like, you know, that doesn't really do too much. But grassroots movements towards um, different, you know, different consumption patterns are, are really positive. Um, and, and sort of even going back to COP, right? Um, if countries follow their nationally determined contributions, forecasts are predicting a 2.4 degree rise above pre-industrial temperatures, which compared to before COP, you know, um, that figure was 2.7 degrees. So... You know, like, like it's 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 a small difference, but it is a different policy and grassroots movements together can hopefully save us. Fingers crossed. They have to. <laughs> There's no other option. Is there? <laughs> <laughs> There's no other option. Unfortunately, there is too much short term thinking. Governments are looking at resolving the next scandal, ensuring that they gain votes for the election or even dealing with more imminent crises like the current pandemic. Larger corporations are often money-motivated, looking to maximise their profits, but often cutting corners at the detriment of the planet. But it is quite easy to look at the big challenge of climate change and feel sad or worried about the future. 
COP26 is a step in the right direction and, if successful, it will provide an essential mechanism for creating intergenerational environmental fairness. And like the guests in this month's podcast have shown, everyone can do their own little bit. If even have an easy-to-use template on their website for you to write to your MP to push for change, to ensure a better life for future generations. Fighting for equality amongst current and future generations is something that we should all strive towards and is central to the work of IF. If any of the topics and discussion in this month's podcast have caught your attention, then head over to www.if.org.uk, where IF have conducted incredible research into the topic. Or follow the Intergenerational Foundation on Twitter, Facebook, and even Instagram. See you next month. What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation.